At a time like this, it's easy to see why local news is so important and why that news should be free for everyone who needs it to be. Your support of KCUR makes this essential reporting possible. If you can, please donate. KCUR.org slash give. And thanks. Good morning and welcome to up-to-date special coverage, Coronavirus in Kansas City. I'm Steve Kraske. We start our show today by looking at one of the most vulnerable populations in town right now. That's the homeless. Then we'll turn to a conversation about essential workers and what it feels like to have to go to work during a pandemic. But we begin, as we always do, with Sam Zeff and a look at the day's top stories. Sam, welcome back. Thank you, Steve. We're talking politics this morning. What do you have for us? All right. Well, first of all, as you know, there is a crowded primary for U.S. Senate in Kansas. That got a little bit more crowded yesterday with the addition of a pretty famous plumber who now wants to be a United States senator. We sent Frank Morris out to cover that story. If you've watched local TV or listened to area radio stations, including this one, you're probably at least passingly familiar with Bob Hamilton. Sink backing up. Better call Bob. Bob Hamilton, plumbing, heating, AC, and routering. Hi, I'm Bob Hamilton. Now, Hamilton is running to replace retiring Senator Pat Roberts. Hamilton met with the National Republican Senatorial Committee earlier this year, and he may be wealthy enough to finance his own campaign. But he faces a crowded GOP field that includes former Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, Kansas Senate President Susan Wagle, and Kansas Congressman Roger Marshall. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Frank Morris. Now, Bob hasn't, uh, Bob Hamilton hasn't filed with the uh, Federal Election Commission yet, but he did uh, incorporate his campaign with the Kansas Secretary of State's office. That got filed a couple weeks ago, about a week ago, actually. Uh, And he said in his filing that he plans to establish a 527, uh, which is an IRS designation, which means he could fund his campaign uh, all by himself. Okay, so Bob Hamilton's in the race. There was some Kansas City political news yesterday as well, Sam. Yeah, Kansas City Councilman, former Kansas City Councilwoman uh, Alicia Kennedy, uh, Kennedy, uh, who also ran for mayor, uh, has decided that she uh, is going to run for lieutenant governor of the state of Missouri, and Lisa Rodriguez found that story. Kennedy served one term representing the city's 5th district before announcing her mayoral bid in 2018. Although she didn't advance to the runoff between Jolie Justice and now Mayor Quinton Lucas, she made a strong third-place finish despite spending far less than other candidates. While on the city council, Kennedy took a strong stance against renaming Paseo Boulevard to honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., saying the council bypassed citizens' rights by pushing the name change through without consulting residents along the street. In Missouri, the lieutenant governor runs on a separate ticket from the governor. The only other Democratic candidate to file so far is Gregory Upchurch of St. Charles. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Lisa Rodriguez. I think it's fair to say, Sam, that Missouri has never elected an African-American to statewide office. Yeah, I think it's, as you know uh, better than I, I think that's a uh, that's a heavy lift. Uh, but uh, she was very active on city council, was a prosecutor before that, uh, and I think a very attractive candidate. Okay, that's KCUR Sam Zeff. Sam, thanks for the update. Thank you. We asked Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas a couple of weeks ago what he was most concerned about during this pandemic, and he didn't hesitate with his answer. 
the homeless. Homeless folks tend to cluster together. They don't have access to regular food or hygiene. That means they're more susceptible to the coronavirus than most people. Now a conversation about how the most vulnerable among us and the organizations that help them are faring during a pandemic and what more can be done to help them. With us, Stephanie Boyer. She's the CEO of Restart and was on the show earlier this month talking about the funding crunch that's causing her to phase out the 90-bed shelter at 918 East 9th Street. She joins us via Skype. Stephanie, welcome back. Thank you. Good morning. Also with us, Precious Stargell Cushman is the CEO of Community Link that works to support children, families, and individuals. Precious, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Stephanie, as we begin this morning, uh, do you know of any member of the homeless community that's suffering today from COVID-19? We do have reports of a couple of people, yes. Hmm. Precious, what are you hearing? We have not as of yet, which is a fortunate situation. So, Stephanie, how concerned are you about this and and the potential for what this means? Oh, we're definitely, you know, highly concerned, um, particularly um, because of the communal living environment that a lot of people experiencing homelessness um, do live in. Um, Those that are unsheltered on the street obviously lack the ability to regularly wash their hands, things like that. And even for those in shelter and in programming with us, again, it's a very large communal environment. There are lots of hands touching doorknobs multiple times every day. Um, so it's it's definitely, um, you know, highly concerning. How quickly could this fire spread among the homeless? What would you anticipate here? Um, you know, I think... Uh, once it reaches, you know, into the community, I think, you know, we could potentially see pretty, pretty wide community spread within that community. Um, you know, we're definitely taking every precaution that we can to try to prevent that from happening, you know, within our shelter and, and housing program environments. Precious, I'm wondering, how worried are the homeless about this coronavirus? It is something that we had to spend a lot of time on education around because unfortunately the homeless have a lot of more pressing issues that they're focused on and having to respond to. So really around a lot of education around COVID-19, the implications and the precautions to safeguard oneself are the things that we had to spend a lot of time educating around and making sure that folks had the right supports. And when you say they have a lot other uh, issues to worry about, what are you referring to there? I'm talking just by virtue of the name homeless. I mean, shelter is a real serious issue. And then you couple that with um, insecurities around wages and um, just food access and different levels of insecurity. I mean, those are the things that people who are homeless suffer with every day. Now this coronavirus has made it interesting for us to feel the need to really work around uncertainty, fear, and, and scarcity. And so we're now for the first time being placed in their shoes. Hmm. So when a homeless person, Precious, is told about the coronavirus, they might look at you and think, Precious, I've got a lot bigger fish to fry than some virus that's out there. That's correct. 
Stephanie, you told our producer that your population, your homeless population, is always in crisis. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, you know, Precious just touched on, yeah. you know, some of those things, definitely. Um, you know, just the every day not knowing exactly where you're going to stay, where you're going to eat, if you're going to be able to locate income, they might be worried about their family, not be able to have contact um, with folks, um, and just the the everyday stress of, of not knowing, um, you know, kind of what tomorrow brings for them. Hmm. Precious, you talk about your concerns about secondary trauma. What, what are you talking about there? Unfortunately, our caseworkers who are deemed as essential personnel have to hear every day some of the real challenges and in some situations, some of the horrors that some of our homeless families and individuals have suffered. And as a result of this, um, it is not easy to be able to distance yourself from some of those things. And it becomes part of who you are and, and trying to distance some of that and not take it home with your families or just have it loom so much that you're incapable to helping people moving forward. Hmm. So those are the things that are really focused on what secondary trauma is all about and our need to remain healthy distance to help people create paths forward. And that's only been exacerbated right now because of the virus, right? That's entirely right. How do you help your staff deal with that? And now one more thing with the virus added on top of all that. How do, how do you help your staff work through that? Well, that's a wonderful question because as we talked about, there being essential personnel and basically at the front line, you know, when most of us are sheltering in place, you know, some of us are right there in the midst of all this. So, you know, our team has been doing double duty, um, not only supporting the clients in really stressful times right now, but they too are parents, caregivers, and some might even have compromised health situations. And so they're trying to balance their life as well as our clients. And it's a lot, so, you know, I- So you're I'm saying, sorry. Precious, that your staff is actually out on the street well, our folks are really protecting self, self, excuse me, please, self distancing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our work is being conducted remotely or on online meetings. But we actually have six buildings, and so we're actually housing folks in our complexes, as well as trying to place them into the community housing shelters and other landlord relations. So where folks are having direct contact, especially our facility folks, um, our maintenance crew, and then um, are going in relatively weekly, I mean daily, excuse me, and um, going in and checking in on, on issues. And um, so we're still very much part of this process. So as you talk to your staff, Precious, about this whole coronavirus outbreak, are you getting any sense that the homeless are practicing safe distancing? Or again, is that concept uh, way down the list of the things that uh, homeless folks are worried about? I think there's becoming uh, increased awareness. So some of that is taking place. Some of it is really difficult. I mean, you think about some of our low-wage workers 
they're the ones working at the front line as well, you know, being our grocery store partners, um, helping with medical support. I mean, so there's not a lot of opportunity to kind of shelter in place. And then we have the added burden with childcare being at a really scarcity level right now. So parents are having to work, come home, deal with their families, support their children. And the children, especially in environments like ours, are really anxious and want to be outside and want to visit. So uh, we're being trying to be extra cautious to help kids really practice social distancing. Well, Stephanie, I think we framed the issue here pretty clearly in our conversation this morning. You know, I've heard Mayor Lucas talk about this concern. I've heard Governor Mike Parson of Missouri talk about this concern. So to what extent have they come up with a plan to deal with this population, to help the homeless during this critical time? What are you seeing? Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a team of us uh, working with the city diligently, and I'm very hopeful that I hope by midweek um, this week that we have a solid plan in place. Uh, we've been doing a lot of preparation over the last few weeks and vetting a lot of different options, you know, from the get go. Of course, our concern has been uh, when someone goes and does receive a test and they're awaiting test results, where do they go in the meantime? Mm. Um, they can't really return to such a large communal environment like what we have um, in case they are positive. And then as well as once we do have someone who does test positive, where are they going to isolate and self-quarantine uh, when you don't have your own home to do that in? And, so, and what are the answers to those two issues you just raised? Yeah. Um, so locating alternative shelter options. Um, so to be able to allow space for people to shelter in place um, that can protect them and protect other people. Um, so really for that um, interim phase of waiting for the test results, the ideal space is an individual space because we don't want to mix those people together because some will be positive and some will be negative and we don't want to expose them to others, you know, who might be positive. And so, have, have those um, interim spaces been established yet? Not yet, but they're getting really close. I'm, I'm really hopeful in the next today or tomorrow that that is is hopefully going to be finalized. Are you looking at looking at maybe several locations around town for this interim phase? Um, hopefully just one hmm. for the kind of interim phase and then probably multiple locations for the kind of second phase of folks that might test positive. And multiple locations for that second phase you're saying. Yeah. And, and where would that like where any any thoughts yet on where that might be? Um, I mean, we've been vetting lots of different, um, you know, options and spaces, properties, um, buildings. Um, lots of folks have come forward to maybe say this this might be a space we could utilize. Um, so there's been a lot of conversations. Um, so I'm really hopeful that, um, you know, we're going to really be able to come up with a really great plan. Stephanie, I imagine this is more complicated than it appears because you might have to convert an empty space into something dramatically different to house homeless people during a time like this. Absolutely. Yeah. Some of those spaces, you know, um, that we've been looking at so far, I think could pretty easily uh, be done. They're kind of environments that might already be set up for that type of thing. 
Um, but there are, of course, spaces that would need a whole lot of work, um, which takes time. And we don't really have time on our side right now to do that. I was going to say, how much pressure do you feel that you've got to come up with answers real quick here? Absolutely. I feel like we needed this plan over a week ago, at least, you know, so and I think everyone does. And I know the city does as well. Feels that pressure of we've really got to, you know, get this nailed down. And not to belabor the point, Stephanie, but is this taking too long? Uh, I mean, it's. I don't think it's taking too long. I think we're just all feeling the pressure of, you know, we know we need this plan. Once we have this plan, I feel like a lot of us will be able to breathe a little bit easier. Uh, just knowing, you know, even my staff, right, they're waiting for this plan because, you know, the response is, well, what happens when we have someone who tests positive? Like, what's going to happen, you know? So, um, it, it will definitely uh, just relieve a, a whole lot. I mean, we're not seeing a gigantic need for it right at this moment, but we all know that that could dramatically change in the matter of a day or two. I was going to say, Stephanie, and remind me, maybe I'm I'm getting my facts mixed up here. When we began our conversation, you said that a couple of folks, you suspect they might have it or they have tested positive. A couple of folks experiencing homelessness have tested positive. Okay, yes. so you're, we're already there then, you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, Precious, is, is this taking too long or are you satisfied with the progress you're seeing? I think that it has been a really tough process. And not from the standpoint that I've been disappointed in my teams and, and the collective community. There's just a lot to coordinate. And so lots of good things happened early on um, where we have certain organizations providing complete full self support for the homeless population. Um, Hope Faith is one. We've got Veterans Community Project also right. helping to provide tiny homes to help support that insulation that Stephanie was referring to. We also have work being done on both sides of the state line trying to identify um, isolation facilities, both in KCK and in Jackson County. So it's really around the coordination of so many resources. And I think to Stephanie's point, you know, we already are here um, with a few folks testing positive. The real issue is if we have this come to scale and having those resources put in place really readily to mm -hmm. support those folks. Stephanie, I'm wondering, do we know where the two homeless individuals who have tested positive, do we know where they are now? Yes. Yes, we know where they are. Are they being isolated? Yes. Okay. I'm wondering, what happens if one of those individuals uh, says to you, you know, I want to go back on the streets. I don't want to be self-isolating right now. I want to go back with my buddies. What, what can we do? What might happen there? That is a concern. You know, I, I just sent over a list of like kind of what ifs yesterday, actually, um, to our group. Um, and, and that was definitely one of them is what if the person, you know, we set this up and then what if we get the person there and the person refuses to stay? Like, what are we doing then? What kind of liability do we all have? Um, it, does this fall under some kind of duty to warn? Like, you know, um, what do those steps look like? So, this is definitely uncharted territory, you know, for all of us. So um, our hope is that we can provide a very um, comfortable space for people and provide all the wraparound support that they're going to need. And so our hope is that 
you know, they will absolutely um, agree to to stay in place. Do you know if, in fact, you have the right to insist that they stay in place? It does not really appear that we do, no. Hmm. What do you make of that? Um, you know, it's, it's a concern, obviously. Um, but I think, you know, we all have human rights. Um, and I think, you know, just as uh, we see the common person out not exactly practicing social distancing appropriately, um, so, um, you know, that, that's concerning too, right? And we still have a lot of folks getting out, going to the store, not really for essential items. I've seen folks as I'm going in for essential items for restart that are really just kind of spending a lot of time in a store, really not doing much of anything. You right. know, we've seen people out playing basketball and doing all of those kinds of things. So, um, you know, we, we can't force those folks either, so... You know, Precious, before we leave this part of our conversation, I want to make sure I'm being really clear on on one point that, you know, it's easy to sit here and talk about the need to coordinate and to get this plan in place. But if I'm understanding what the two of you are saying, we're talking about lots of agencies, lots of individuals, two sides of the state line, different cities, different states, uh, lots of coordination that needs to get done here to get this problem squared away before too long. Am I am I seeing that correctly? Oh, you're talking about that explicitly correct. I mean, it's the educational system, it's our superintendents, it's workforce development, it's mental wellness source, it's technology, it's transportation, it's human rights, Harvard's human services organizations. It's a comprehensive group. So, yes, it's, it's taking a community effort to really stay focused on this. And, and Precious, is, is the city of Kansas City working in conjunction with the state of Missouri, or is the city pretty much on its own here? When, when is, is it getting any help from the state of Missouri? I don't have a good vantage point on that currently. In fact, I, but I do know that I believe there's a fair much of coordination I mean, um, the state of Missouri came out with quite a few supports, um, you know, federal disaster and things right. of that nature, which would allow us to kind of dovetail for those things from a city perspective. I don't know specifically, but I wouldn't um, doubt that that kind of discussion and conversations are taking place. Stephanie, hop in here. Is the city getting some help from the state? Um, I mean, from from what I have seen and, and from what it feels like from those folks, not a whole lot. I really feel like Kansas City is kind of leading, um, definitely leading this effort and this charge. And I think we've seen that by Mayor Locus's early uh, intervention of, you know, requiring social distancing and uh, entering a stay at home order. And, you know, it's it's been late in the game and still yet we haven't seen some of that um, from the governor for for statewide efforts. Any sense, Stephanie, of what would be helpful from the state of Missouri right now? Um, I mean, I definitely, you know, just think the more folks that we have together, uh, the more minds together, you know, right. as we get groups of people together, just thinking through these different pieces, it's, it's super helpful to have different people from different perspectives um, thinking about liability, risks, um, you know, all of these different pieces. So 
Again, this issue appears more complicated than it might appear on the surface. If you're just joining us, you're listening to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. We're talking right now about what the Kansas City Metro needs to do to deal with its homeless population. We just heard from Stephanie Boyer this morning that two members of the homeless population that we know of have tested positive for coronavirus. The concern is that virus can spread quickly amongst a community that tends to cluster together. If you want to join our conversation, with questions and thoughts, 816-235-2888 is our number here, or you can tweet us at KCUR up to date. Uh, Precious, uh, give me a sense of of the size of Kansas City's homeless population today, at least in terms of what we know. And is it getting bigger? Is it getting smaller? What what can you tell us there? Well, for the last several years, um, homelessness has been on the rise in Kansas City. Uh, most recently, we had a point in time, which was took place in January, and we have more than 2,000 um, households that are considered homeless. Mm-hmm. And now what we're concerned about with this pandemic is that we're going to be um, experiencing more folks potentially slipping into homelessness with loss of wages, and jobs, and homes, and things of that nature. So that's a real concern. Right. Stephanie, um, why should folks who are not homeless be concerned about what might be happening in the homeless population in terms of the the spread of coronavirus? Is there a connection? Is there anything that that I should be worried about? Um, I, I mean, I don't definitely don't think that people need to be like worried about or fearful of people experiencing homelessness in terms of this virus. No, I mean, um, in terms of if a homeless population contracts coronavirus on a on a large scale. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, they they are kind of nomadic. Sometimes they do travel around a lot. Um, they move about. Um, you know, I think uh, one of the main concerns for us is if there is widespread among that community is are we accessing all of the people? Are they getting tested? Do they know? Um, you know, so those are definitely conversations that were happening as well. You know, we're still doing outreach work. Uh, we're trying to monitor some of those folks, do some education our hope and is that is that more testing is going to become readily available in the next week or two. And our hope is that we can get out there and start doing some mobile testing, mm-hmm. um, you know, to really just make sure that um, people are aware, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, people experiencing homelessness battle chronic medical conditions and are, and often become ill and, and they kind of just, deal with it a lot of times. Well, we don't want people out there just dealing with this, right? And suffering, we, we want them to be sure that they're accessing appropriate um, you know, medical care, getting tested, and that we can get them connected to the right services that they need. So mobile testing, Stephanie, would be a priority for you right now as part of the plan you're putting together. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Let's go to some phone calls at 816-235-2888. Mike from South Kansas City. Mike, good morning. Yes, I, you, I heard you all mention about do you get any funds from so-and-so. And what I was thinking about, uh, I just wanted to mention, I hope that these women can help get these people included in the census so that they can uh, be counted and uh, benefits head in their direction. That's all I need to say. Yeah, Mike, thank thank you. Precious, what can you tell us about efforts on that front, or maybe those are being put in the back burner given the higher priorities right now? 
Oh, no, that's very much a part of our process and working with the Census Bureau to capture those numbers um, for the folks that we serve. And that's really going to be important. So I thought that was an excellent question. Okay. Uh, back to some calls. Uh, Tamara from Lee Summit. Good morning. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say I, I think that if, you know, if we can use uh, the federal disaster that money that Governor Parson has requested from the federal government to get a hold of these rapid tests, um, you know, we could be testing the homeless population within 45 minutes, and then we know for sure, you know, these guys are safe. They, you know, they can go ahead and stay in the shelter tonight um, and not have to worry about the crowded condition and, um, you know, the, the conditions that are similar to, to what's in the jails as well. You know, um, the, the concern is, you know, any communicable disease within right. the homeless population. Um, you know, they hang out at the library. They, you know, due to no fault of their own, they, you know, they need a place to shelter. So right. um, it's, it's up to, uh, you know, Governor Parson. And I feel like the lack of leadership on his part has been um, a big part of the problem in the state of Missouri. So you're emphasizing the need for testing as well, Tamara. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like we need to get a hold of these tests that can give us results within, what, 45 minutes or, right. um, you know, yes, these, these need to be made readily available, um, you know, because we're just not testing nearly enough people. Thank you for the call. Stephanie, Any what are the prospects for those kinds of tests that Tamara just talked about? Yeah, we had a conversation yesterday with some medical professionals, and they're saying we're at least one to two weeks out from being able to get access to those rapid tests. But there are some concerns in the medical community about the reliability um, of of those tests. Um, So, um, you know, so I think that's really what's kind of being vetted over this, you know, hopefully this next uh, week or two, and then hopefully they are going to um, be more readily available. So... I want to get to two things before I end this segment here. Uh, Precious, the Shawnee Mission Post uh, had a story today pointing out that with all the libraries, coffee shops, and indoor gathering spaces closed during the pandemic, that Johnson County's homeless population is running out of places to go during the day. I assume that applies to the homeless on the Missouri side of the state line? Yeah, I think all of us are finding ourselves really pressured with places for the homeless to congregate and gather. I mentioned earlier that Whole Faith Ministries is doing an amazing job providing support, um, a whole host of supports to the homeless community. And where are they and there located, are others Precious? As well. Virginia and 12th Street. Okay, so down east of downtown, it sounds like, yeah. Yeah. And final point, Stephanie, I would be remiss if I didn't ask. You were on the show a few weeks ago talking about the fact that a funding shortfall has caused you to start phasing out your 90-bed facility, which is also just east of downtown, I think. Where are you in that process right now? Any hope? I know the city council came in with some help, but where do you stand? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, you know, our goal was to really start attritioning those beds out by the end of this month. Um, And so, um, unfortunately, we haven't really been able to to do that at this point. Um, We were working on housing plans with folks. And of course, um, as this virus has come about, that has slowed down people's ability to um, be able to exit shelter 
um, and to to work through their plans. So, and we're obviously not going to just put people out in the midst of of this kind of pandemic going on. So, so you're saying you can't phase out the number of beds. So, but you don't have the money though, do you? Right. We have reduced the beds to about half. Um, also, due to social distancing, it's the only way. Uh, we can't run all 90 of them right now. We would it would be way too many people kind of in one uh, room or one area. So. Um, the city did come through with some funding for us, um, and there's a match requirement in there. So we've reached out to a couple of funders. We're hopeful we'll get that match. Um, and if we can get that match and the, the whole 250000 from the city, that'll that'll get us close, hopefully, to, you know, uh, close to half the dollars um, right. you know, that we might need, which would support at least half of those beds, um, which is really our, our critical point now. And, and we'll be, you know, seeking every opportunity of any kind of uh, federal dollars and stimulus package dollars that that come in to to fight this as well. We'll stay in touch with you about that. That's the voice of Stephanie Boyer. She's the CEO of Restart uh, again at 918 East 9th Street. Uh, she joined us via Skype. We were also joined by Precious Stargell Cushman, the CEO of Community Link that works to support children, family and individuals. Thank you both very much for good conversation. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. After a short break, when we come back, we'll talk about what it's like to be an essential worker having to work during a pandemic. I'm Steve Kraske, and you're listening to Up to Date on 89.3 KCUR. And welcome back to Up to Date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. I'm Steve Kraske. What's it like to be an essential worker who has to work during a pandemic? Turns out there can be a lot of pressure on people who have to do their duty, even though that makes them more vulnerable to contracting COVID-19. Even the question of what an essential business is under is under some scrutiny these days. Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas cited 200 businesses on Monday for not following stay-at-home orders. Lucas said some businesses shouldn't be open and ordered them to cease their operations. Now, now we'll spin the dial on this new world of essential workers and how people feel about being essential in this era of the coronavirus. With us, Nia Richardson is the KC BizCare Manager. BizCare is the free business resource, advocacy, and information center in the city. Nia, good morning to you. Good morning. Ray Dulugolecki is the Jackson County Community Health Division Manager. Ray, good to have you. Good morning. Thanks. Thanks. Good to be here. Nia, you help uh, businesses determine if they're essential. What does that mean exactly? How, how do you go about doing that? Well, uh, yeah, our office is taking in the inquiries from people who are trying to help determine if their business is essential or not. So, you know, we're going off the order in which the mayor had issued to help people determine that. Um, and then also those things that we're not clear about, we're just having communications with the mayor's office and the health department to help give people answers of whether or not they're essential. Um, there are two criteria that we're looking at, um, the necessity of the business or supporting life and safety to the overall population. Um, again, like the mayor said yesterday, if, you, if you're not sure if your business is essential, it's probably not. Um, and whether or not the business is deemed essential is not, it has nothing to do with the value of the business. It's, it's really about, it, does it support health and safety for the community? So, Nia, where does the buck stop? Who ultimately decides which businesses are essential and, and which ones aren't? 
Right now, we're taking direction from the mayor's uh, mayor's office and the health department. Um, they're the ones who make the final decision on whether one is essential or not. And just quickly, Nia, I know you met with the mayor's staff this morning. Any new, new developments there? None at this time, but we are always getting inquiries in every day, every minute that we're following up on that we may not have a clear answer for um, just to help people make that decision so they can function. But no, no new ones at this time. Well, Ray, again, you're Jackson County's Community Health Division Manager. What do you do if you come across a business that is operating that isn't deemed essential? What, what's the process there? Yeah, so uh, very recently we actually um, unveiled our enforcement procedure, and we put it out there to the general public really to be as transparent as possible as far as um, what our process is um, uh, that we follow to to contact these business so businesses. So the first complaint uh, that we receive is is really about education. So health department staff will identify the responsible party via phone call or email and educate them regarding uh, that county order um, and and really document the interaction. Uh, the re- responsible party will also be emailed a copy of the executive order if if requested. Uh, but we really try to ensure that our staff are are educating. As much as possible. Um, from there, we we kind of formalize the process a little bit more. The second complaint, a notice of non-compliance will be mailed to the responsible responsible business for immediate action to be taken uh, to get them back into compliance with that executive order. There's still some education that's occurring, but uh, we're we're uh, we're past the point of of you know they've been told several times. Uh, after the third complaint, um, you know it's it's of the utmost importance that uh, some of these these businesses um, you know comply and and get people um, kind of out of their um, out of their congregations as far as in the business and so at that point we uh, we work with uh, local cities local law enforcement uh, to have them go out and do kind of an in-person check and and uh, and take it from there as far as if any sort of um, violation is necessary but we really give you know the businesses every opportunity to comply with this order. Are businesses being cited these days uh, in the wake of this order? So we have not reached that point at Jackson County. Um, we have several businesses that are moving through our um, process or procedure, as, as I kind of alluded to before. Uh, we have a few of them who have received uh, non-compliance letters. Uh, I think yesterday, actually, uh, we had about six or seven of them go out, but uh, we've had set, we have, we've had a numerous um, complaints and numerous phone calls about businesses from all across Jackson County who are not following the the, um, the the order that we have to follow up with. Ray, again, you're with Jackson County. Do you have any involvement with businesses in Kansas City, Missouri? We don't. We don't. We have this unique situation where there are multiple health departments in Jackson County. And All so right. Kansas City Health Department uh, deals with Kansas City, Missouri. Yep. Nia, are uh, Kansas City, Missouri businesses being cited these days? Uh, I believe after the conference yesterday, you know, with the mayor saying that he sent out warnings, but I don't think they've gotten to the level of citing folks yet. Yeah. Um, to what extent, Ray, are businesses being cooperative once the initial letter goes out and you, you know, they, they receive an initial indication that they aren't deemed to be essential? Are they shutting down or is, there, is, it, is it becoming an argument pretty quickly? 
Yeah, so the overall majority of businesses have been absolutely wonderful to to work with on this. You know, they've they've um, not been uh, sure about where they fall into the order, and so just with a quick conversation with our staff, they're able to take appropriate action. We've had um, a few businesses that are um, that are fighting um, the order a little bit, and you know, I would say it's it's not even necessarily fighting; it's trying to pick apart pieces of the order uh, to to basically stay in operation, and and really we all. All need to remember that the intent of the order is to ensure that the maximum number of people self-isolate in their pre- place of residence mm-hmm. to the maximum extent feasible. So, um, you know, there, there is there is a little bit of that going on, but again, overall, overwhelmingly, most of our businesses have been been fantastic. Nia, with Kansas City, uh, with uh, KC BizCare, how would you answer that question for businesses in Kansas City, Missouri? That are non-essential. Yes, are, are, are they? Are most people w- willing to be cooperative, or are they fighting you a little bit? Uh, based on what we're seeing, we're just pretty much responding to emails, and so far, so good. But you know, we get a lot of questions from people who are considered non-essential, and we let them know, like, hey, you know, you can still operate online. Um, this is a challenge for our businesses to be innovative. Um, you can operate online. You can still perform your minimum business activities to keep your operations going. It doesn't necessarily mean just stop in general, there are still things that you can do to make sure that your business can keep going. So we try our best to kind of work with them and help them figure that out and what they can do. Is it fair to say, Nia, that there's a lot of confusion out there as to what's an essential business and what isn't? I would say possibly so, just based off of what we're seeing. It it seems like people are really confused. Um, You know, if you want, I can go down a list. Um, You know, the mayor has, the city has a frequently asked questions page um, on the on the website that we're constantly updating. So at the end of the day, we our office will send a report to say here's some questions that are coming up consistently, and to have them add that to that FAQ so people can see those most consistent questions that are coming through. But you know, for the most part, healthcare facilities are okay. Uh, are essential food and drink production and distribution, sanitation, transportation financial services, um, manufacturing distribution, maintenance and construction of infrastructure, um, essential government operations like the city and the county, um, residential facilities including hotel and motels, media communication providers, mailing, shipping, and and delivery services. Um, For those that are non-essential, a a for sure one that we know is non-essential is anyone who does personal uh, health, um, not health care, but personal care, Mm -hmm. like a spa. Uh, beauty or barbershop. Anytime you have to interact with someone um, like that face-to-face, you're more than likely going to be a, a, a non-essential because the whole idea is to stop the human contact so we can stop the spread of the virus. Right. Uh, so any way that you can think or be creative of how to do something where you limit the interaction, where you create a social distancing practice, might be a good way of, of how to think about moving your business forward, because we might be in this for a little while. Okay, that's Nia Richardson. She's the KC BizCare Manager. Nia, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate no it. No problem. Okay, if you're just joining us, you're listening to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. We're talking uh, about essential workers who have to work during a pandemic uh, how do they feel about that? Jordan from Kansas City, Missouri. Jordan, you're on the air. Yeah, thanks for having me this morning. Yeah, go ahead. You're you're an essential yeah. worker with the YMCA, right? Yeah, I work for the YMCA, and right now we've got uh, several different child care options for uh, essential workers out there that are, you know, we're just trying to be an option for families that, that do have workers that do uh, need to be have their kids somewhere during this time. So we're just trying to be an option for families in the community of 
for those essential workers. How do you feel about having to work during a pandemic, Jordan? You know, I, I think right now we've taken a lot of safety precautions. We've talked to a lot of people on both sides of the state line as far as um, health departments and whatnot and trying to just make sure we're being safe, taking taking care of ourselves as well as the families and the kids that we're uh, seeing on a daily basis. Oh. And are you are you are you scared about all this? I'm not, I don't really have, you know, I, I don't worry about it. And I think that's part of just getting up and going to work and trying to stay as normal as possible. Um, you know, I've got a great team at the YMCA that have done a lot of checks, check-ins on the team uh, that we put together to, to make sure that we're having an option for families for care at this time. And we're just, um, you know, I, I don't have time to necessarily be scared about it or worried about it. I think I've tried to stay healthy. Um, you know, we do regular temperature checks even on our own staff to make sure that nobody's got fevers, nobody's walking around with a cough, hmm. staying, telling people to go home if they're feeling even slightly um, ill right now. But, you know, it's just trying to operate like normal because, I mean, this is a global pandemic that we're worrying about and dealing with. But right now there are professionals out there that need somebody to, to take care of their kids during this time. And we're trying to do the best that we can to, to make sure that's an option for them. Jordan, just a final thing. Have you lost any of your fellow workers who have said, perhaps I can't work during a time like this? You know, we had a few that have said, you know, right now I don't feel safe or I, I, I'm not comfortable with coming into work. And, you know, we haven't necessarily lost them, but because we I think we just lost uh, lost him. Well, let me go to another phone call here. Let's go to Idris Rayofi, who runs a contracting company. Idris, nice to have you. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Um, tell me about uh, your own situation. How do you feel about having to work right now? Well, um, so I run a plumbing company, and we're pretty used to working around pathogens and taking extra precautions. Um, I also have three little kids at home, so it's kind of like my daily regimen to, you know, strip down my clothes and wash my hands really thoroughly before I play with my kids. So, you know, outside of just like trying to practice social distancing on the job site with other contractors, uh, that's kind of like the more difficult part. Hmm. Have you lost any of your fellow, uh, your workers who have said to you, I don't want to work during a time like this? Um, so I've, you know, I've been on sites where, you know, there are people who are potentially sick and they're told not to, to go on site. And I, myself, I've been trying to prioritize work where I might be the only tradesperson on the job. Like those, that'll be the, so like maybe like I'm just the, the only plumber there. And then, you know, a couple of days after I finish, then the electrician comes in yeah. and so on and so forth. What concerns does your family have about the fact that you're working right now? Um, well, the biggest concern was, you know, we don't know if we're actually carriers. Um, we went to a Bernie Sanders rally in St. Louis of like 4,000 people right before this all happened. And then we all got sick, um, like pretty, pretty violently sick, mostly gastrointestinal and, you know, without access to testing or antibodies testing, like we don't know for sure whether we just had a very mild outbreak of it but I'm operating under that assumption. And so I take those precautions. I assume I'm a carrier because <laughs> I can't prove that I'm not. Hmm. So I wear a masks and gloves whenever I interact with my clients. Um, but also, you know, when I come home, it's a hundred percent stripped down, like get into, you know, quarantine mode. 
and, and and that's hard to to manage all that, isn't it? If I wasn't a plumber, I think it'd be a little harder. Um, mm-hmm. But I, yeah. I know that like a lot of other trades, like some of the uh, carpenters um, are are struggling a little bit harder because their work is more you know renovation oriented, yeah. and there's less people expending that type of money. Whereas you got a plumbing problem, it, the pandemic doesn't care. Right. Well, that's it, Reese Rayofi. Uh, thanks for taking some time. Be safe. Thanks for taking uh, uh, making a phone call here. I appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. You bet. Again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. We're talking about what it's like to be an essential worker who has to work during a pandemic. 816-235-2888 our phone number. Uh, let's go to Will Burris. Uh, Will uh, works in a grocery store, uh, deli. Will, nice to have you. Well, thank you for having me. How do you feel about having to work right now, Will? Um, it is a little bit bizarre where, on one hand, you know, I know that I'm, my coworkers and myself are potentially being more at risk of getting the virus because we're interacting with a lot more people going about their day-to-day routine in a grocery store. On the other hand, I know a lot of people who are temporarily without a job and so at the same time, it's nice to have one thing that hasn't really changed all that much. I just have my normal work schedule like before the virus hit. Well, I was going to ask you if you feel lucky to be working or do you mostly feel that you're making yourself more vulnerable? How would you answer that? Um, it's a weird kind of dichotomy where it's both at the same time where, you know, a lot of a lot of the people where I work are a bit worried that they are at increased risk for, for getting the, the disease. But at the same time, we're also, we also feel a little bit fortunate because we all know people who aren't working and are wondering how they're going to pay their upcoming bills where we don't have that. We're a little bit fortunate, if you want to call it that, that we don't have that problem. Well, Will, when you're interacting with so many members of the public every day, how vulnerable do you feel? Um, I have to say that working in a in a deli, I feel a bit less vulnerable than maybe some other people who are on the regular floor of the grocery store, because you know we're always wearing gloves. There's a counter separating us, and you know we're practicing proper hygiene, changing gloves after interacting with every person. So I feel a little bit less at risk because there is that little bit of separation. But at the same time, you know, people touching glass, people going around and and having to talk with people is still you know we're not, we're not always sep- separated extremely far away from the customers yeah so you know it it is a little bit of a heightened risk but compared to a lot of other grocery store workers i think that we're we're maybe a bit more safe off is there any extra pay in it for you uh no there there hasn't been any extra pay where i am i could have predicted that answer i think here will Hey, Will, thanks for calling in. Be safe out there, okay? Thank you for having me. You bet. Let's go to Todd from uh, a barbecue shop. Todd, good morning to you. Good morning, Steve. Uh, where are you working and why are you working, Todd? Well, I'm the owner of Plowboy's Barbecue, and uh, we have three restaurants in Kansas City. The Blue Springs restaurant is operating drive-through. Uh, our Kansas downtown Kansas City restaurant's closed. 
and we've converted the Overland Park restaurant to a community kitchen. We're working with Operation Barbecue Relief to provide 2,500 free meals a day for the next couple of weeks um, to anyone that needs them. And I was able to bring back six of my 40 displaced workers. Um, and we're how, not requiring – oh, go ahead, Steve. How safe do you feel, Todd? Uh, I feel pretty safe. We've been following recommendations and protocols from the World Health Organization and CDC. Some of the things we're doing to protect ourselves is no contact. Um, in the Overland Park location, we've separated ourselves from the public. Um, no one's allowed in the building unless they ask um, procedural questions. Right. And we've, even inside the building, we've separated the kitchen staff from the front of the house. They have separate restrooms and all that. So. Um, they have different places where they break. So we're trying to just, even within ourselves, keep from a lot of close contact. Right. Todd, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Thank you. Let's go to Holly from Kansas City, Missouri. Holly, you're on up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm so glad I was able to get in. Um, I work at what is deemed a, a, an essential business, and I have a health and safety background in the medical field and food, and I work at Amazon, and I can tell you that with the culture of the business, there's a lot of window dressing, a lot of PR, but we absolutely are not following best practice. What's the most egregious thing you've seen, Holly? Um, that people are not held accountable or and it's not enforced that we sanitize our workstations every time we move from station to station. We've been told that um, fans have to be put, that they just put in in January, have to stay on, which blow across us, of course, spreading the virus. Right. We were told by leadership in the building that they're working with local health officials, whoever that may be, and that that was approved, and we have no right to turn the fans off. Well, Holly, we're going to have to leave um, our conversation there, but I'm glad you called in and cited those concerns at Amazon. I want to thank all our guests, including Ray DeLugalecki with the Jackson County. He's the Jackson County Community Health Division Manager. Well, we've been talking about essential workers this hour because they're making a big difference for a lot of us, including my next guest, uh, Scott Perry, is with us from Lewisburg, Kansas. Scott, I understand you recently had an overwhelmingly positive experience when you were hospitalized in Olathe. What happened to you? Well, to begin with, the, the nursing staff, the front lines, they were amazing. I was in quarantine and just incredible people that worked there. And what touched my heart is that when I went up in the ambulance, I had forgotten my reading glasses. And nobody on the floor had any. And uh, patient's advocate, Michelle, she actually went down to the store herself and picked up some reading glasses for me and brought them back. Hmm. But what they also did, which touches my heart, is there was a card with a big puppy dog in front. And everybody signed it and get well. Our wishes are with you. Wow. The people there are just fantastic. So you were tested for COVID-19, and, and it took, I imagine, a few days for that test to come back. What was waiting like during that time? Did you have a good support system there? 
Um, well, the hospital's on lockdown. There's no visitation, but like I said, the nursing staff was fantastic. Yeah. And yes, anxiety levels were through the roof. How are you feeling today? Um, better, a lot better. I have in the last three weeks. I, I tell you, uh, they did an amazing job. I was heading towards kidney failure. I've got pneumonia, and it was just they brought me around. Wow. Well, why do you think this? Yeah, ex- why do you think, Scott, this experience stands out to you so much? The people. Um, even I'm in quarantine. I've got the Methodist Church bringing food out. The fire chief, bless his heart, brought me a warm meal. Everybody is pulling together. There's the Americans. There's hope. Huh. We will get through this. Well, that's Scott Perry. He's with Lewisburg, Kansas. Scott, I'm glad you're well. Thanks for the phone call. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And we want to hear what's helping you get through these tough times, whether it's a random act of kindness or a personal ritual. Let us know. You can leave us a voicemail at 816-398-8207 with your brief story name and where you live. Again, 816-398-8207. You can also email a voice memo to KCUR producer Mackenzie Martin at mckenzie at kcur.org. We'll put the phone number and the email address on our webpage. So I'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. I'm Steve Kraske.